Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 21st of March, Tom O'Toole taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Tom takes us through the book of Exodus. Tom is one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and also runs the Broadcast Network, an online resource for church planters. Let's take a listen to the session. Great. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for having me back after uh, doing a session last year. Um, Just to let you all know what I'm planning on doing... um, You usually have times where uh, the speaker stops talking, gives you things to do, uh, think about, chat about with people uh, on your tables. Now, uh, if you're logging on with others, uh, like in in a household, uh, we'll we'll still do that. I'll still put questions your way. And um, if you can, talk to the people who are watching the same screen. But if that's not possible and you're logging on on your own, uh, then I would still encourage you to engage with the questions that I'm asking and maybe get a notepad and just jot down some of your own thoughts because this reflective process is an important part of what we do. You don't just want to hear me uh, talking, uh, but you want to have some content and then have opportunities to engage with it yourself as well. Uh, Also on the Zoom facility, we've got a a chat option uh, where you can type in anything that you want to say uh, so particularly as I'm going if anything doesn't make sense or you have further questions feel free to just ask them in there and um, depending on the flow of where we go in either I'll pick it up straight away or we can come back to it at various points and look at what questions have been asked um, I'm going to give you something to do yourself to start with so this is a little exercise for you and I just want you to try and make a note if you can without looking so um Bible's to one side for now, but see if just from your memory, uh, you can outline what are the main things that happen in the book of Exodus. So just what what comes to mind for the book of Exodus. So just take a couple of minutes to, to jot down the main events. And then once you've done it, then get your Bible out and just have a look which chapter in Exodus, the things that you wrote down happen in. Yeah, hopefully you've had a little bit of time to, to go at that and make a start. And Andy, why don't you tell us what like a few of the things that first jumped to your mind were? Uh, yeah, a few things popped to my mind in terms of what's happened in Exodus is obviously uh, kind of bricks without straw, the whole kind of um, the Israelites being in Egypt, um, kind of harsh labor, slavery, the 10 plagues um, coming, out of, coming out of Egypt. Uh, that were the kind of the first things kind of popped uh, mm-hmm. into my mind about exodus yeah yeah cool um did you get a chance to look at the chapters or or roughly where they are yeah so i had a look at some of the chapters i mean kind of key one is like passover chapter 12 i think it's kind of yep. a key key kind of chapter um yeah and obviously you've got all the kind of the wilderness parts um as well being in the wilderness kind of chapter yep. well 20 you got 20 um, is 10 commandments. And then mm-hmm. after that, kind of wander around the wilderness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Like when I've tried to do this, I found that um, most of the things that first come to my mind all happen near the start of the book. So uh, like you were saying, the bricks without straw, the plagues, the Passover, th- these are like the, the bits that get most airtime. All of it 
is near the start and then we've got this 40 chapter book that um that near the end we probably don't uh, see as much or don't spend as much time on as the stuff near the start but my plan this morning I'm just going to take us through the story of the whole book so we're going to look at what's happening uh, and just tell the exodus story really uh, and, and this story that we're telling of the exodus this was the founding story for the people of Israel so you see later in the bible time and time again when people are recounting their history it's the story of the exodus that they will often tell so you get Psalms that talk about uh, God who brought us out of Egypt. And uh, it's something that they'll turn back to uh, over and over again. And, and it's also a founding story for us as the church. Like the story of the Exodus uh, is a model that then uh, we see fulfilled in Jesus. And the Passover uh, in the Last Supper, Jesus showed that that was uh, about his death. It was his blood and it was his body uh, that were broken. And so uh, it's our story as well. And I, I would say if I had to summarize the, the theme of the book of Exodus uh, in one sentence, it's, it's a book about knowing God. That's really what the book is about. And uh, what I would like you to do, just um, just have a go at this, the things that you noted down uh, as kind of the events you picked out of the story of Exodus, just take a minute and see uh, how, how these things relate to this idea of knowing God. So uh, yeah, just can you see any links to that theme? from those events. Just take a minute or so on that. Okay, hopefully you had a few thoughts there, but um, as we go along, we'll tie different things into this theme. Uh, we're going to start with the, the first section of Exodus, uh, which is about knowing God as a rescuer. So this is the God who rescued his people out of slavery and uh, the way the book starts uh, is uh, building on the story of Genesis that you heard about last time from Andrew. Um, in fact, the first five books of the Bible were written as one unit, the Pentateuch. So uh, Genesis leads into Exodus. And in Genesis, we saw that God met with Abraham and made him some promises. So he promised many descendants to Abraham. He promised uh, a land. He promised that uh, the descendants of Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. And by the end of the book of Genesis, we've seen a little bit of progress on some of the promises. So uh, Abraham's descendants have grown out and there are uh, 70 of them. So uh, his great grandkids. And um, you're starting to see this, um, this multitude to come from Abraham be fulfilled in, in quite a small way so far. But you see the uh, trajectory it's going on. Um, the promise of the land, though, that one isn't looking quite so good because they've been in the land, but then they've had to move out of the land into Egypt when the famine came. So uh, you've got like a, a small people, but far away from the land that God has promised. And uh, they are being a blessing to the nations. We see through uh, Joseph in particular, he was able to, at a time of famine, make sure there was food for everybody. So uh, we're starting to see a little bit of these promises to Abraham fulfilled and then uh, as exodus comes in uh, it picks up the story uh, but it takes it on uh, a few hundred years so uh, andy do you have a bible to hand would you mind just reading to us uh, the first seven verses of exodus just to set the scene yeah so exodus chapter one verse one these are the names of the sons of israel who went to egypt with jacob each with his family reuben simeon levi and judah Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, 
the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Great. Thank you very much. So uh, this is telling us what happened next after these 70 people were in Egypt. And it said how they grew and were fruitful. And this is tapping into the promise that God made to Abraham. Um, But then what happens, verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We've said that the theme will be knowing God. Well, this new king didn't know Joseph and he didn't know uh, what Joseph had done and uh, he didn't know Joseph's God. And so he starts mistreating the people. Uh, and this a numerous nation of the Israelites in Egypt, uh, they're being opposed and they're being oppressed uh, and they had to do hard labor. And there was instructions given to the midwives to kill the male baby boys. So this is a, a brutally hard time. The people of God are uh, being Uh, yeah uh, oppressed and harshly treated in Egypt this is uh, the the scene that the exodus uh, is entering into and then in chapter two we see the birth of one of the main characters of the book and this is Moses so Moses uh, I'll read verses one to three Uh, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman the woman conceived and bore a son And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. It's interesting. Uh, As you went through Genesis, I've I've heard Andrew's uh, talk, and he was uh, talking about how this, this promise of God was passed down from generation to generation. It went from Uh, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and and then it went to Judah Uh, now in chapter two and we might be expecting that the hero of this story uh, was born of the tribe of Judah but but that isn't the case this is uh, someone from the house of Levi so uh, we're no longer directly following that line for this story but we're seeing uh, a different story that will parallel that one and will be a model for what ultimately happens uh, through uh, this descendant of Judah who is Jesus so um, yeah this man of the tribe of Levi and his wife, they have a baby, but obviously the instruction has been given that the male children should be killed. So they're in a, a predicament. They don't want this to happen to their son. And so in the end, his mum gets a, a basket. And you, you know, the Hebrew word for basket here literally is ark. And it only happens in one of the story in the Bible, which is the Noah story. So here it's like she got the baby and she put him in an ark and she covered it in bitumen, and pitch which is exactly what happened in the Noah story as well put him on the water and he found salvation from a threat through being in this little ark it's uh, bringing to mind this idea of God saving and God rescuing and so uh, this baby in this basket is found by the pharaoh's daughter and um, she she wants to bring the child up so she needs someone to help her uh, and it's Moses's mum who gets the job of doing it so God just engineered this situation perfectly but Moses then he has a funny upbringing because he's brought up uh, in Pharaoh's household uh, like like as a prince really uh, and yet he knows he's one of the Hebrew people who's who've been mistreated or having a harsh time of it so he's growing up really with a foot in both worlds all of the privileges and 
pleasures of Egypt and yet this sense of identification with God and his people and those who are getting a hard time of it. And I think in a lot of ways, his experience parallels our own experience uh, as Christians. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're living uh, as citizens of two places. And um, how did Moses handle this situation? Andy, can I give you another Bible passage to read? Could mm-hmm. you could you grab Hebrews 11 and just read verses 23 to 27 for us? Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 27. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the, the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Great. Thank you very much, Andy. Just tell us, having read that, what what strikes you from it about how Moses handled his situation of being like one foot in both worlds? He chose. Um, So he didn't, I mean, for me, I don't know what I'm I'm reading. And I think he, he didn't remain one foot in both worlds he like he had to choose one or the other and he chose he chose to be ill-treated he chose to be part of the people of god really. yeah 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 absolutely he, he knew where his loyalties really were and yeah and there was a costliness to that uh, there really was he could have had all these treasures of egypt and a really cushy comfortable life and yet he he knew there was something more important than that um so then Moses, he, he has a go. He's feeling this identification that I am one of the Hebrew people. And uh, he has a go at um, rescuing them. He, he sees an Egyptian uh, mistreating a Hebrew man and he, he goes and, and he kills him. Uh, and then uh, eventually he's rejected when he tries to lead uh, the people. So he, he runs away and lives in the wilderness. And he's in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, the start of the real um, rescue and exodus proper uh, is in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Uh, It says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God hearing their groaning. uh, Sorry, God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You see, this story starts with God. Before uh, anyone gets rescued, before anyone knows God, it starts with God knowing them. Verse 25 says God knew. That's my story. You know, I I think it's the story of uh, these Israelites here that God knew them when they were far away. And that's my story. I was a, a 19-year-old kid at university, not a thought in the world for God. And yet it's like he looked on my situation and God knew. And that's where it all started. You know, I had a, a situation uh, yesterday where my car broke down and I needed to call uh, for the AA guy to come and help me out. And uh, there was a moment that I just knew my car isn't moving. I have no idea what I'm going to do here. I was in a, just a bit of a panic. Uh, and then once I'd placed that phone call, uh, there was a much 
just kind of a new sense of peace came on me because I was like, right, someone who can rescue me from this is aware of the situation. There's someone now who's on the case, who's going to do something, who's going to get me home. And uh, that's what, what these verses do. They paint this picture of now, and uh, God has remembered, God has known. So you've got this sense that something is going to happen. And that gives a, a sense of security to the whole story that God is on it. So in chapter three, uh, you've got Moses now in the wilderness, been in the wilderness for decades, and an angel appears to him. Uh, verse two describes as the angel of the Lord uh, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So uh, the character here is described as the angel of the Lord. But by verse six, you, you see, we're not talking of any old angel. It says, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So uh, so you've got uh, this description of the angel of the Lord, but uh, quite quickly you see he is God. Uh, and this character appears a lot in the Old Testament, this angel of the Lord who sometimes seems slightly distinct from God, and yet other times you get this says this clearly is God. You see, even in the Old Testament, you've got this sense of the plurality within God. You might not um, use the language God the Father and God the Son uh, at this stage in the story, but uh, I think we are seeing uh, God the Son here, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus to Moses. And uh, having appeared to him, uh, there, there's this sense of reverence. Moses needs to take off his sandals. He hides his face before God. Why? Because he's well aware that God is holy and he's sinful and he uh, he's not worthy of being in God's presence. And actually, it's a very dangerous thing to do to bring sin into the presence of God's holiness. And it's a very dangerous thing to do to bring God's holiness into the presence of sin. Like God's holiness uh, will destroy sin and, and it's not safe for sinners to come into the presence of God. That's why we need to be completely cleansed by the Lord before we can do that. So God introduces himself to Moses uh, with those words, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's, as he first uh, tells Moses who he is, he's tapping into the story that's already been told. So Moses growing up will have heard these stories of the God who appeared to Abraham, the God who Jacob wrestled with, the God of Isaac. He will have heard these stories passed down through the generations. And uh, as God meets with him, the first thing he says is that God that you've heard about, all those stories that you've heard, that God is me. I am that God and I'm meeting with you now. And then he tells Moses what he's planning to do. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so as I said, I've heard their cry. I know how bad it is. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to get the people out of here. And I'm going to give them the promised land. Uh, and Moses uh, then enters into a little bit of a negotiation with God. Because God said in verse 10, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God said to Moses, you're going to do this. Now, 40 years earlier, this was exactly what Moses wanted to do, to step up and be the leader and be the hero. 
Now he's not so sure. Now he's uh, having a little bit of a back and forth and trying to wrestle his way out of it. Um, his first uh, objection, verse 10, uh, sorry, verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He wants some reassurance, like, oh yeah, Moses, you're the man. God doesn't say that. He just says, verse 12, I will be with you. So it doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters who I am. And I am with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you where you've brought the people out of Egypt. You'll know it when I've done it. Then Moses said to God, well, if I come to the people and say, and the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they'll ask me, what is his name? So and that's his second objection. Tell me what your name is so that I can tell them. And, and we get this moment of incredible revelation of God, where God reveals his personal holy name to Moses. I don't know when you were at school whether you had ever had that experience of finding out one of your teacher's first names. Uh, I remember it happened to me when I was in year eight, my English teacher, uh, Mr. Smith. I realized that his name was Chaz. Uh, so Chaz Smith was my teacher. And, and he, there's something about it when, when it's transformed from kind of just a formal authority figure of Mr. Smith to know this man is Chaz. I, I know something more about him. I know who he is. Well, Moses has this revelation of God's name. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And you see it's in capital letters there, because uh, literally it's Yahweh. That's what God revealed his name to be. I am who I am. And um, <clears throat> you often see it as the four letters. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Uh, and it's Y H. W-H. When you see it like that, that is Yahweh. In the uh, Hebrew language, they didn't put the vowels in, so it's those four consonants. Some of the older English translations would render it as Jehovah, which is just another version of saying the same thing. And you'll see it frequently in the Bible, uh, and, and in most of our translations, the way they do it uh, is they put the Lord, but put it all in capital letters. And when you see that, you know it's, this re it's a reference to this holy name of God, Yahweh. And it literally just means I am who I am. So Moses, you want to know who I am? Well, what can I say? Like, what can I compare myself to? What frame of reference can I give you? I am who I am. That's all I can say. I'm, it's me that is the frame of reference for everything else. Throughout history, this name has been treated with great reverence. As I say, most of our Bible translations don't write it as Yahweh. They just take a step back from it and write it as the Lord. That was the Jewish tradition as well. In fact, uh, a lot of the uh, old scribes who copy out Bible translations, when they came to it, they, they wouldn't write it with the same pencil that they wrote the rest of the words. They'd get a brand new pencil just for it. They'd stand up in reverence. They'd pray when they came to it before writing it down. So um, uh, this name was treated uh, with huge reverence. Well, having got this revelation from God, Moses is still not satisfied and he's still not ready to go. So he continues his negotiation in, verse, in chapter four, verse one, where it says, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And so uh, the Lord gives him a sign to perform as he uh, throws his staff to the ground and it becomes a serpent. And as he uh, puts his hand in his cloak and pulls it out, leprous, and then uh, does the same 
and reverses it. Uh, and he has one more uh, complaint as well. He's like, I'm not eloquent. I'm not very good at public speaking. Uh, and uh, by now, God is, uh, <coughs> you would imagine it, it would be quite exasperating, but God is still very patient with Moses and says, okay, if you really want someone to go with you to speak on your behalf, your brother Aaron can go and be your mouthpiece. So finally, Moses is satisfied and they're going to go and there's going to be a showdown with the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Into chapter five. It says afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So that's the demand. Let my people go. We're going to go out into the wilderness and we're going to have a feast to God. But Pharaoh, uh, he is not happy. Uh, he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. We've said this book is about knowing God. Well, Pharaoh, in his own words, says, I do not know God. I do not know the Lord. I'm not interested in what he has to say. I will not let Israel go. From then, he makes even harsher demands of the people. Uh, before, they were having to make these bricks out of straw. Now he said, I'm not even going to give them the straw. They've got to go and find it themselves. So uh, the demands on them are heavy. And so uh, a showdown is coming between God and Pharaoh. The people complain to Moses about their situation. And Moses brings the complaint to God. So uh, in chapter 7, Moses and Aaron go and appear before the Pharaoh. And uh, you've got a, a bit of a competition with the Pharaoh's magicians. So uh, the sign that God gave them about uh, throwing the staff and it becoming uh, a serpent, they do it. And rather than being like, whoa, that is incredible. Like, how did you do that? The magicians are like, oh, yeah, we can do that too. And they do exactly the same thing. But it's, it's um, Aaron's staff that swallowed up theirs. That it was a better snake and it ate their snakes. So then uh, in light of this, you've got a series of plagues that get worse and worse and worse that come upon Egypt. Each one is a sign of God's power and supremacy over these magicians and over the gods of Egypt. So uh, the first one uh, is the water of the Nile turned into blood. And we're told that after, uh, after this happened, and Moses and Aaron, uh, on behalf of the Lord, did this, we're told that then the Pharaoh's magicians could do the same thing. Uh, the second one, then, uh, is a swarm of frogs coming over the land. Uh, again, the magicians could do the same thing. But Pharaoh said, look, look, if you stop this, if you make these frogs go away, they thought, all right, I'll let the people go, because he didn't stick to his word. The third one was uh, a swarm of gnats over the land. And this time the magicians couldn't replicate it. Uh, they just declared, look, this is the finger of God. They're seeing now a power beyond what they have. Plague number four is the flies. Again, Pharaoh's words were, I'll let you go if you stop it. They stopped it. He did not let them go. Plague number five, the death of the livestock of the Egyptians, but not of the Israelites. We see the distinction. It's affecting the people of Egypt, but God is protecting his people from it. The sixth plague is, is the boils. And this time, the magicians actually were afflicted by it, and they got them as well. They couldn't even stand up. Plague number seven is hail upon all the land. Uh, and Pharaoh is uh, reaching a, a, a bit of a realization by this point. He says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. He's starting to get it. 
But then when it stopped, he hardened his heart again. Plague number eight is the locusts. Uh, and this time, uh, he's got his servants on his back now. Pharaoh's got his people saying, come on, mate, just let them go. We're fed up of all these afflictions. We're fed up of all the plagues. Could you just let the people go? Pharaoh asked for it to stop and he asked for forgiveness. And yet still he doesn't let them go. Plague number nine is it's dark across all the land for, for three whole days. And by the end of this one, uh, Pharaoh says, just get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. And so he's driving them away. But there's still one more plague to come, the final one, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute. But what I want you to do now, I'm going to get you to do a bit more reflecting and a bit more thinking. Uh, I want you to skim through these plagues that we've looked at, chapter 7 to 10. And just see if you can note, when Pharaoh's heart gets hardened, who was it that hardened his heart? Just look through all of them and note down, who was it that hardened Pharaoh's heart? And then just think what reflections you have on it theologically. What do you make of, of what you learn? Maybe uh, you might want to type some of your thoughts into the chat or maybe just note them down for yourself. Just take a few minutes looking and thinking about that. <laughs> Great. How did you get on with that, Andy? Well, what did you uh, notice? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've gone through with a highlighter and just <laughs> looked for hardened heart. And there's, yeah, every single one of the plagues, there's um, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Um, mm. I noticed with the darkness, um, with the darkness plague, um, it says the Lord hardened mm. Pharaoh's heart. Um, with the plague of locusts, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, also with the plague of boils is the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Although interestingly, um, th there's a few that it just says for the plague of Nazis says, but Pharaoh's heart was hard. Mm -hmm. um, and for livestock it says his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people yeah. go. So there's a few where it just says like his heart was hard and that was it. Yeah. It doesn't specify how it got that way. But yeah. um, for a few, it, it says that it was definitely the Lord hardened his mm -hmm. heart. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and there's also, um, uh, on the second one, the frogs, it says that when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart. And so we, we've got a mix of different uh, attributions here. So uh, sometimes we, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Sometimes we're told it was the Lord that did it. Um, and sometimes, as you say, we're told uh, neither, just that the, the net effect was that his heart was hard. We've had a couple of uh, people commenting in on this um, Ezekiel says uh, God was behind Pharaoh's hardened heart he knew Pharaoh would not let his people go and moreover God wanted to demonstrate to him of uh, his power uh, and then uh, Rachel Austin says it appears to be the Lord or the results of the plague chapter 9 uh, verse 7 she uh, points out which says uh, Pharaoh said and behold not one of the livestock of Israel was dead but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people uh, go. Is this because God wants the miracle to be greater? And then uh, Leslie Slyke says himself, the Lord. We certainly do see both of these things are true, that God is active in this and that Pharaoh is active in this as well. God's not doing something against Pharaoh's will here. Pharaoh's uh, heart is being hardened by his own volition. And yet it's the Lord who is doing it as well. I'll just kind of leave that thought there. Uh, for you just to wrestle with and consider you know, going forward. Often it's uh, uh, just want to, to ponder and mull on uh, what God's done. Um, but yeah, through these plagues, God is demonstrating his own 
supremacy. God has demonstrated that compared to the magicians and the gods of Egypt, he is above them all. In fact, uh, each of these plagues corresponds to a different god that the Egyptians worshipped and the different thing they were supposed to have supremacy over. Well, well, God has shown that he has power even over these things that the Egyptian gods would claim to have power in. So then we come on to the 10th plague, which was the uh, really the central piece in this founding story, which we see uh, in chapter 12. So this is the Passover. Uh, let's just read. Andy, would you mind reading uh, a passage to us? Uh, chapter 12, verses 29 to 36, please. Thank you. Okay, yeah, chapter 12, verses 29 to 36 yeah yes. at midnight the lord struck down all the firstborn in egypt from the firstborn of pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well pharaoh and all his officials and all the egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in egypt for there was not a house without someone dead during the night pharaoh summoned moses and aaron and said up leave my people you and the israelites go worship the lord as you've requested take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as, the, as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. And so here we see God is visiting in both judgment and in salvation. Uh, and knowing God, if, you, if you're to know God, it means both knowing him as judge and knowing him as saviour. So the judgment that came here was the death of the firstborn. So the firstborn uh, of every family in Egypt was taken away. And we can look at something like this uh, and ask the question, is this fair? Is this just? And the answer is yes. These were people uh, who were oppressors. They were, uh, they'd done wrong and they uh, repeatedly done wrong uh, despite being given opportunities to repent. And, and this is a key piece of the biblical story that God sets himself against oppressors. And to know that God's judgment is part of who God has revealed himself to be. And we see the judgment here. But we also see a salvation for his people. He's bringing his people out from this oppression and from this place of suffering to a better place. And how, how did it happen? It happened uh, by sacrifice. So uh, in the Passover, what happened uh, is that this uh, angel of the Lord would come and take the firstborn of every household. Those who were spared were those whose, whose house, a, a lamb had been sacrificed and they'd taken the blood and they'd put it on the doorposts and over the door frame and anyone in that house was spared. So if there was an Israelite family who were like, no, no, stuff this, we're, we're, we're not bothered about this, we'll, we'll, we'll be all right and didn't do what God had mandated, then their firstborn would be taken as well. And if there was an Egyptian family who'd heard this instruction and be like, yeah, actually, uh, I, I want to look to the Lord for salvation and I want to take the blood and apply it over uh, the house, then the angel would pass them by. All are guilty and all deserve it, all deserve the wrath of God. And yet any who are covered by the blood will be spared and so that's how uh, this worked but it, it was the israelites who followed the instructions the israelites uh, applied the blood to their door frames and by this blood they were passed over 
and set free. So uh, they were brought out of this place of suffering. And then they were told year by year by year, remember this, uh, the Passover festival was instituted. So uh, every year they remembered what God had done for them. Here's what Desmond Alexander says about this. Given all that is achieved through the original Passover in Egypt, it's hardly surprising that this event was to be celebrated annually by future generations of Israelites. No other Old Testament redemptive event matches the Passover in terms of theological significance. As well as being freed from bondage to a tyrannical despot, the Israelites are consecrated to become a holy nation, with their firstborn sons being delivered from death. Their rescue by God, which marks the first stage towards the establishment of a covenant relationship, comes through redemption from slavery to an evil power and protection from death through a ritual that involves purification and consecration, the key elements of atonement. By these means, their status is transformed from being slaves to a cruel tyrant to becoming royal priests in service of the one true God. So with all this that's happened, um, uh, they leave Egypt, but then Pharaoh changes his mind again and starts to pursue them. So then um, the army is pursuing them, the people are there, and they reach the sea. And, and they're kind of trapped now, the sea on one side of them and the army on the other side. And so what God does is he opens up the seas for them to pass through. And then they're able to walk through the sea as though it is dry land. And then after the people get through, the seas close again uh, over the Egyptian army. And summarizing uh, what's happened and all that he's done uh, in chapter 14, verse 4, uh, it says, um, 14, verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so this idea of knowing God, the Egyptians didn't know God and they wouldn't let his people go. Well, now they know him. They know him as God Almighty, who will rescue his people from the hands of the oppressor. So they're brought out, uh, rescued uh, onto dry land on the other side. They have been saved and they know God, their rescuer. So Moses uh, and the people sing a song of praise and thanksgiving to God on the basis of all that he has done. Let me give you something else to reflect on just for uh, a few minutes now. So based on everything we've seen in the story so far and how God has revealed himself to the people of Israel, what does it mean for this people, the people of Israel, to know God, uh, just based on what they've seen so far? Good, Andy, what thoughts? do you have then for, for the people based on what they've seen so far what would it mean for them to know god i think uh what they will have grown to know about god through what they've seen is that this is a god who rescues <laughs> um i think they probably also have learned that this is a god who, who who invites participation so like he could have just freed them by clicking his fingers but he's decided to use people use moses to do this um, and also he, he doesn't just want to rescue them. He, he wants them to remember it. So he's got this kind of thing. Look, I, I, you know, the whole Passover thing. Well, we've maybe not got there, but I, I've maybe skipped ahead a bit, but, um, he wants people to remember this, uh, that it's not forgotten. Um, and it kind of shows them something of the character of God. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. 
couple of things I got. Great, cool. Um, I'd imagine others had similar thoughts as well. Feel free uh, to type in any other ideas you had too. Uh, so they've known God the Rescuer. Um, what they learn in the next few chapters is God the Provider. And um, there's a few different stories about how God provides different things so uh, we can start in chapter 13 uh, verses 17 to 22 and we see that God is providing them with direction so uh, as they were moving God was uh, their sat nav and would guide them by pillars of cloud in the day and pillars of fire at night the idea is that as the pillars moved the people were to move and as the pillars stayed still the people were to stay still so this is a wonderful picture of the christian life we're to be led and guided by god as, as god goes we go as god stays we stay keeping step with god that's what the israelites had to do so god provided them with direction in chapter 15 uh they, there's water available but it's bitter and so the people started grumbling and complaining about it and the lord provided them with sweet water in its place in chapter 16, uh, they're hungry and they can't get any food. And um, God provides again. And God provides bread from heaven. And the idea is that this bread, this manna that God has provided, will be available every day. Uh, so they're to go out every day and get just enough for that day. Very uh, topical at the moment. No stockpiling allowed of the manna. Um, just take what you need for the day. Uh, and, and then if they did try and take too much, it, it would have rotted and gone off anyway, uh, except on the Sabbath where they could take two days worth uh, as a, a sign of God's miraculous It's a shame, Tom, we don't have that today for people who buy too much pasta. That, yeah. <laughs> you buy too much, just rots. That would be really I mean, nice. uh, Sorry, <laughs> I'm interrupting, but yeah. <laughs> It'd yeah, be quite a nice thought. Start making it like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but then, unbelievably, even though God's providing this miraculous food, they're like, oh, it's a bit samey. We need something else. So he provides quail for them to eat as well uh chapter 17 uh, again they need water and uh, moses strikes a rock and water comes from the rock uh we've also got uh, in the same chapter god provided a military victory so uh, you've got joshua as the general uh of the army like fighting this battle and up on the hillside uh you've got moses uh, and moses is in prayer and as his hands are aloft in prayer the people are winning and then uh, as his hands come down uh, the battle starts going against them and uh, it's clearly uh, seen through moses's prayer that god is the one who provides the victory uh, and then in chapter 18 uh, god's provided more leadership capacity moses is getting overwhelmed uh, and through the advice of his father-in-law jethro um, they get this idea actually there are all these leaders within the people who can lead tens who can lead fifties who can lead hundreds and who can lead thousands delegate some responsibility and use this um use this group of people that god has provided and so they do um but isn't it incredible kind of a, a common theme through a lot of these stories is how much the people were whinging i mean they they were in egypt they were having to make bricks without even being given the straw they were being harshly treated they uh, like there was hardly anything to eat there and uh, they were beaten often and that they were slaves and god has rescued them from that and then they're like, oh, it's only bread. Can we, can we have some meat as well? And so quickly they turn from uh, this song of thanksgiving to uh, just kind of complaining 
about everything and it did make me reflect i wonder if we sometimes have that same tendency that we forget what god has already done for us and so and so uh, we we complain we uh, we make out like god hasn't given us things that that we're due when god has given us so much so, uh, in a minute or two we, we're going to take our first break but just before that i think um, it'd be a good thing to do just type into the the chat maybe one or two things uh, that you're just grateful that god has given you that god has done for you uh, and then maybe just take a minute just to pray uh, and and thank him for those things and then and maybe in a minute or so andy would you just pick up a few of the things that come through the chat in like a a, a summarizing prayer and then then we'll take our break <laughs> Yeah, so I'm just going to pray now. Father, thank you for all the good things that you give us, Lord. We believe every good gift that we have is a gift from you, Father. Thank you for, for health, Lord. Thank you for friends and family. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for salvation, Lord. Um, thank you. Some people have talked about opportunities to study abroad for provision. Um, Lord, thank you for all the good things that you have provided for us, Lord. Um, yeah, you're so good to us, Lord. And even in these times when we lose a little bit of our freedom of movement, Lord, we, we still have so many things to be thankful for, Lord. We have a, uh, so many things to be thankful for. You're a great God. You're a generous God. Thank you for showing us that this morning, that you're a provider, that you're a rescuer, Lord. And thank you for reminding that, uh, us of, of that, Father. Amen so uh where we are up to, so far we've looked at god rescuing his people we've looked at god providing for his people now we're going to look at some of what it means for them to be god's people so uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 19 of exodus uh, and chapter 19 is where god makes his covenant with moses uh, and in the covenant uh, this is laying out the terms of a relationship that's what a covenant is uh, so we have them like when people get married that's a marriage covenant and you see covenants made at various times in the bible so um, at the beginning of chapter 19 it says uh, on the third new moon after the people of israel had gone out of the land of egypt on that day they came to the wilderness of sinai they set out from rephidim and came into the wilderness of sinai and they encamped in the wilderness there israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's important because that's saying that God's saving action came before any of this stuff that we're talking now. He saved them unconditionally. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this covenant that God makes with Moses, it's a two-way covenant. He says uh, in verse 5, therefore, if you will obey my voice, and keep my covenant which is in, in contrast to the covenant that he made with abraham so uh, the covenant with abraham was a very one-way thing it was some promises i will do this i will do this i will do this whereas here with moses uh, you, you get a bit um, a bit both ways i will do this but i expect you to do this and god had expectations for his people obey my voice 
and keep my covenant. If you jump on to say like Leviticus chapter 26, and you get lots of blessings laid out. If you keep my covenant, if you walk in my ways, things will go well for you in the land. You will live. Uh, and it's a whole set of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If you disobey my covenant, if you break my covenant, this is what will happen. And it won't go so well. It's a two way thing. The covenant also sets their identity as God's people. Uh, it says they're his treasured possession among all peoples. There'll be a kingdom of priests. Now, the individual priesthood hadn't even yet been established, but the whole nation would have this priestly function, standing, uh, representing God to the nations around them and representing the nations around them to God. It says you will be a holy nation. So it's kind of shaping the relationship that God's people will have with the world around them. And something for us to mull on is these same words that were spoken to them then uh, are also for us because uh, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says to, to Christians something that echoes the same language. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. This same thing about being a royal priesthood holy nation a chosen race it says once you were not a people but now you are god's people so uh, this identity set up in the covenant and israel accepted the covenant they said yeah we're in and we want to be a part of this uh, and then god descends on the mountain and on the mountain what happens is god gives the law to moses and he starts with the ten commandments Andy could you read to us uh, Exodus 20 uh, verse 1 to 17 so this is the 10 commandments that Andy's going to read yep so Exodus 20 verses 1 to 17 10 commandments and God spoke all these words I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Thank you for that. So this is the, the starting point in God giving his people the law. It then follows on through the next few chapters of uh, Exodus and uh, also much into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. We see God give his law to the people. Uh, and so uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time reflecting on on the law and what it is and what it does. Now, uh, to do this, I was going to show you a, a video at this point. Um, but rather than uh, me show it to you, I'm going to put a link into the chat to a YouTube clip. And I'd like you to just take 
time to watch it. So it's about a three minute clip. I want you to watch the clip and then reflect on three questions. So question uh, number one is, why do you think God gave the law to the people back then? Question number two is, what relevance do you think the law has for Christians today? And then question number three relates to this video. Uh, the video is from the West Wing, which is a, a great TV series. But just what do you make of the speech given by the president uh, in that clip? And how would you answer a friend who says something similar to you? You should all have the link. Give us a shout if you do not have it. And um, I'll put the questions up on the screen as well. And um, we will take a few minutes and do those things. All right, should we bring that back together? Um, so, Andy, what did you make of that clip from The West Wing? Uh, I remember watching that. I've watched The West Wing three times from start to finish. So, um, yeah, interesting. It seems like the the president seems to be trying to win this argument by saying, well, this bit's in the law. Why are you being this bit, but not all these other bits? There's kind of discontinuity there um and he's kind of using it to, to win an argument really so it raises the whole question of i suppose what bits of the law do we still obey and what bits do we don't really I think that's probably the heart of what he's getting at isn't it yeah absolutely i mean that's why i um sent the video out to to show not so much because of what he says but because of the logic behind his his argument when you start to unpick it and when you start to see uh, the questions he's asking, you realise they are actually quite difficult to answer. And uh, I mean, some people might say, let's just do away with everything in the Old Testament. But that doesn't seem to be the way the authors of the New Testament treat the Old Testament either. So uh, I just thought we'd take a few minutes to think about what the law is and, and what it's for. And I think the hard bit about it is it's more than one thing. So uh, in, in the law given in the Bible, there are different things that are for different purposes. So what you read, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, would come under the idea of the moral law. So these are things that God is saying, you know, this is how things are. These are things that are right or wrong that I want people to do or not do it. They're, they're an expression of uh, a moral um, element of God's character and will. Uh, some other bits, though, you might call civil law. So uh, remember, as well as giving uh, general instructions for behavior, this law was setting up how a country would run. So uh, the people of Israel were, were a nation and they'd have different laws and, and judges and systems that would be how the country would operate. And you also had a temple code or a ceremonial law, which was how people would relate to God, how people would give sacrifices, various instructions for religious practice. And these three things are all woven together in what we tend to call the law. And uh, the way we need to relate to and treat each one is a little bit different. And what makes it harder is that the three are kind of intertwined together. You don't get like section A of the law is all the moral stuff, section B is all of the civil stuff and section C is all of the ceremonial stuff. It's not neatly compartmentalized. Uh, they're actually um, all woven together. And so part of the, the challenge as we read the law is figuring out, okay, well, which bits speak into which of those things. And sometimes you might get the same law that's kind of speaking to more than one of them 
as well. So now when we when we see things in the ceremonial law, so rules for sacrifices and priests and things like that, then we should realize that those laws have been fulfilled by Christ. So you can read Hebrews chapter 10 uh, and it talks really clearly about we don't need to go on making sacrifices because those sacrifices were pointing to Jesus and Jesus has come as our ultimate sacrifice. Also, when we see stuff that's in the civil law, we need to realize that we're not in the same situation that they are in. So uh, we're not living in a theocracy in the same way that Israel was. In fact, we're living a lot more closely akin to how Israel was when they were exiles in Babylon. So we're living as God's people in a nation that isn't governed by God's law. So look into how the people of God would function in, uh, in books like Daniel, in books like Esther, there's writers in Jeremiah about it. Uh, it can help us figure out uh, a lot more about that. And yet when we see these civil laws and even the, the ceremonial laws, there's still a question of principle. So we might not obey the laws as a command to us, but we still ask, well, why did God set it up this way? What does it show us about who God is and how he would want things done and then apply those into our own lives so like um a classic example that's often given is exodus 23 verse 19 and the second half of the verse says you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk now um that's kind of a word that um probably not that many of us need to directly take and apply uh, today because I, I doubt any of you are currently boiling young goats in your mother's milk. I don't think that's an, uh, an issue that many of us are wrestling with. But when we dig into what that's about, you see, that was one of the religious practices of the nations around them. And why would people do it? It would be as part of a false worship. So uh, what God's saying in that, we take the principle from it, which is, you know, don't get sucked into all the religious practices of the people around you. Uh, stay true to worshipping God. Okay, we take that principle and we live that principle out, even if the way we live it out might look different to people today than it did to people then. And then the moral law, not only are we to keep on... Uh, keeping the moral law like do not murder there's no um, new testament thing that says we're going to relax that one now you can murder all you want these moral things are, are universal but jesus actually taught us to go above and beyond it when he was te teaching on do not murder he says actually even if you get angry even if just in your heart there's a hatred for someone that's kind of like it that, that's the same root as murder so don't do that either so jesus raises the bar on the moral law now sometimes people ask the question about the law in relation to being saved like can you be saved by keeping the law and that would only be possible if you could perfectly keep every commandment of the law not just in action but in principle for the entirety of your life and none of us can so none of us are capable of being saved by the law jesus is the only one who perfectly kept it and he did so on our behalf so one of the things that the law does is it highlights the need for the gospel it highlights the need for salvation not by keeping rules and uh, doing uh, all the commandments but by someone else doing it and giving us a righteousness but the law also it does function as a as a social preservative so uh, as people hear uh, god's instructions and god com god's commands and uh, live them out to uh, to an extent it does help society be a better place it gives us a two-dimensional blueprint 
of a redeemed life. Now, uh, when you're redeemed and the Holy Spirit is living within you, the Bible says it's like the law is written on your heart. But even the law just written on the tablet of stones gives us like a, a blueprint of that. And the law is a precious gift to us. In fact, uh, in the Psalms, we see David a delight in a reveling in the law. We shouldn't think of the law as a bad thing. The law is a good gift given by God. And so, um, so the law is given. Uh, and then having made the covenant and given the law, God reiterates the promise of land. And then the covenant gets confirmed by a sacrifice. So let's, um, let's jump on to the last section of the book then, uh, chapters 25 onwards, about living in God's presence. And this is uh, kind of a long section that mainly is focused about the tabernacle. Uh, and so let me just uh, read uh, from Exodus 25, I'll read verse 2 and then read verses 8 and 9. So it says, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man uh, whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution for me and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture you shall make it so we're going to see some instructions that God is giving for the building of this tabernacle the tabernacle was this massive tent that would be the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people the idea of God dwelling in the midst of his people is the pinnacle that the Exodus story has been built into. Back in the uh, time when Moses was confronting Pharaoh, he would say, let my people go so that they may worship me. The rescue in itself wasn't the be all and end all. It was being there with God in the presence of God. And this uh, taps into a big story uh, that runs through the whole Bible. In the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence. In the new creation, we'll be in God's presence. And the, the story of the Bible is taking us back, the presence lost, but regained through Jesus and God coming and bringing his presence to earth in the form of his son. And then indwelling his church by the Holy Spirit. But then there'll come the day that the whole earth is covered with his presence. And this, this tabernacle meant that God's presence would be in the midst of the people. And as they moved and as they camped, this tabernacle would be right at the center of the camp. Now, a lot of the book is concerned with uh, all the detailed instructions for making the different parts of the, of, uh, of the tabernacle. So you'll get like in chapter 25, some really uh, detailed instructions for what the lamp stands would look like. And th then there's the altar. And there's all these different pieces of furniture and how they were to be constructed now i'm not going to go into loads of detail on how the tabernacle would be used because that really is uh, getting into what leviticus is all about and i think matt's going to touch on that with you next time but they're, they're making this tabernacle and this tent and it, it was a functional place it was a place where the sacrifices would be made it was also a very portable thing so everything had like uh hooks and uh, poles could go through so they could carry it on the move easily and it was a very symbolic design. So lots of things pointing forward to Jesus and lots of things pointing back to Eden as well. But in this end section of Exodus, we get uh, what you call a chiasm. And, and these are worth looking out for when you, you read the Bible. This is like uh, a part of a structure of a book that's like a bit of a sandwich. So uh, in, in Western stories, we'll often put the main thing at the end and like everything's building up to this big ending. In Hebrew writing, they'd often put the main thing in the middle 
And then they'd have like the same themes at the start and end, and then they'd work their way in. And the themes would get repeated and repeated. And in the middle, the most important thing, sandwiched between it all, was the thing that it was trying to point you to. We see that in these last 15 chapters of Exodus. So, uh, Can I just jump in there, Tom? Um, just, uh, just to say, everyone, um, it's really helpfully put out in the notes, the chiasm. Um, so if you have your notes in front of you, it's very helpfully put in there. So it, when Tom talks, if you follow that through, I think that'll be really helpful. Um, sorry, go on, Tom. Yeah, no, great shout. Great shout. So uh, if you've got that, you'll see the first item as, the, as they work in and out again. The first item, chapters 25 to 31, give all the design plans for the tabernacle. And then uh, right at the bottom, verses 35 to 40, we're back on the tabernacle again as it's actually being built. After the tabernacle, you get a few verses about the Sabbath. And then again, you get a few verses about the Sabbath uh, before we go back into the tabernacle stuff at the end. Then you get uh, Moses and the tablets of stone uh, receiving them and bringing them back down. And then you've got this kind of section in the middle where there's like a couple of stories and we're, and we're moving in to the heart of what's going on. And uh, in one of them, uh, you've got the people breaking this covenant that they have made with God and uh, what's happened is Moses has gone up the mountain he's meeting with God he's been there for a while the people are getting a bit edgy and they don't know where he is they don't know what's going on and they want something to worship so uh, Aaron takes all their gold jewelry and he forms them into uh, a golden calf and he said look look this is who brought you up out of Egypt worship this and they do. And it's ridiculous that they do this because God has rescued them. They know this. God has provided for them. God has given them the law. And yet they, they worship this golden calf. And I, I guess it, it's a warning to us, actually. We can be in a place where we've known God's rescue, where we've known God's provision. And, and yet it's so easy to wander and to go astray. So and this should be a warning for us what they do. Well, God gets angry and he's like, look, I, I could just wipe them all out. But Moses uh, pleads with God and, uh, and the plea that he gives is, is, God, think about how this looks for your glory. You've staked a lot on this confrontation with Pharaoh and rescuing the people and looking great by saving your people. Will you get the same glory if you now wipe them out in the wilderness? So then God says to them, all right, then you can go into the promised land. I, I, I will do everything that I've said. You can have the land that I've promised you. I'll clear a path. I'll send an angel. I'll guide you along the way. You can have it all. I just won't go with you. I mean, isn't that a, an interesting thing? Like, have you, have you ever wondered about heaven? If you could have everything that is promised of heaven, perfect peace, perfect joy, a, a world with no sickness, no suffering, no death, a world of harmony, everything good about it. But God wasn't there. Would you want it? Would you want it if you could have everything that was promised? But God wasn't there. W would it be enough? Uh, and for Moses, the answer is categorically no, no deal. We're not going to have the promised land without you, God. He said, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. I don't want to bother if you're not there, God. So God agrees and God says, all right, all right, I'll go with you and then Moses he pushes it even further and he says to God God please show me your glory and God replies he says this I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name Yahweh and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy but he said you cannot see my face 
the man shall not see me and live. So he said, look, I will reveal myself to you. I can't reveal my face to you because you die. But hey, you can get in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass my goodness before you. You will see my back. And then, and then afterwards, we've got the covenant renewed. The golden carpet was broken, but the covenant is renewed. But the very center of this section, and the point that is all uh, leading us towards is when God revealed himself. This book, as I said, it's all about knowing God. And God proclaims to Moses what he is like. And so um, the proclamation that we're given is chapter 34, uh, verses 6 to 8. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Hey, we're going to finish there because th that is the high point. That is God revealing who he is. And that's going to nicely lead us into the second um, session, which is about the character of God. So I just want to give you uh, two more questions to go and to, to just to think about for, for the next five minutes or so. Uh, type your thoughts into the chat box as well if you want. But just to finish up, uh, these two questions. Firstly, how does this book of Exodus point us to Jesus? And secondly, do you see this Exodus story as a pattern for any other biblical stories and as a pattern for modern Christians as well? So I'll put these questions up. Just take five minutes on them and your comments in the chat so andy give us one one or two of the ways that you thought exodus might point us to jesus uh i mean the, the kind of obvious one that jumped out at me was just how god frees his people he rescues mm. his people and and that's yeah. kind of seen in what jesus does really it kind of points forward to what jesus does also i think just the whole um passover the blood of the lamb actually saving people um uh, yeah just also points to jesus because it's, it's the blood of the lamb that, that saves us really um and yeah and then the kind of i suppose this this the second one in terms of what like stories it, it kind of points to I when i was thinking of exodus i was thinking of the story of gideon it's, there's kind of a lot of similarities there of like the people yeah. are oppressed god uses this unlikely guy to go and save the people in the most unlikely way um, yeah. that, that kind of thought of that um, yeah, yeah, yeah that was the good. immediate one that jumped to mind yeah yeah great cool i'm sure there are many other thoughts that that people had there are uh, pretty much every section that we've looked at you can see it pointing to jesus in one way or another and uh, again as you work your way through the bible you find that people commenting on what god's doing in their time quite frequently link it back to the god who rescued his people from slavery and it's the model for our stories isn't it like we were uh, oppressed we had this um, sin it's like the pharaoh character and we needed to be rescued and and we were and through all our grumbling and all our, our failings we're brought to a place where we can be in god's presence so uh, th there's so much there that we can can say uh, but it's time to move on now into our second session